Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the State of Florida Sports Podcast, presented by the USA Today Network. Here's your host, Tim Walters. For the first time this season, the state of Florida has four Power 5 college football teams. Collectively, they're 14-4 and four this season. Miami and Florida State are coming off bye weeks, while Florida lost to Kentucky and UCF lost a heartbreaker to Baylor in their Big 12 home opener. On today's podcast, I welcome in an expert on each team to get a scouting report as we near the halfway point of the season. For the Gators, I welcome in reporter Kevin Brockway of the Gainesville Sun. For the Seminoles, it's beat writer Jack Williams of the Tallahassee Democrat. For the Hurricanes, I welcome back the voice of Miami, Joe Zagaki. And for UCF, it's Chris Boyle of the Daytona Beach News Journal. We've got a packed show, and we'll get started in just a moment. Hello again, everybody. I'm Tim Walters, and thank you once again for joining me on the State of Florida Sports Podcast, powered by the USA Today Network. This podcast utilizes our Florida Sports Network of beat writers, columnists, and some special guests to bring you up to speed on the most important sports topics. Our Florida network consists of 17 news sites that encompass the state. We encourage you to subscribe to your hometown newspaper and, of course, this podcast to help support the incredible journalism done by our talented staffs. We've got four college football teams to break down, so let's start with Florida. The Gators were manhandled by Kentucky for their third straight loss to the Wildcats. Let's bring in Kevin Brockway of the Gainesville Sun to hear what went wrong and how can the Gators improve as the season progresses. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Tim, it's good to be here. All righty. Well, the Gators come off a loss to Kentucky where they played uninspired. They had bad penalties that led to Kentucky points, and they just looked pretty sloppy from what I saw. What did head coach Billy Napier have to say after the loss? And can the Gators get things cleared up and headed in the right direction with Vanderbilt coming to the swamp this weekend and, of course, Georgia at the end of the month? Well, you know, he took accountability for it, and he talked a lot about uh, certainly that they had a lethargic effort uh, early, and you got to wonder why. You got to wonder maybe if it was a noon start, you know, what 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 led to that, what led to the, you know, extreme lack of, uh, you know, playing physical, uh, particularly, you know, with the run defense, which I found somewhat surprising because I thought the defense had turned the corner under Austin Armstrong, even in that Charlotte game, holding him to seven points, you kind of thought that this was uh, okay, that this was a defense that really could, you know, help carry them. Um, but that was not the case at Kentucky. I mean, they were just manhandled, out physical. I mean, Ray Davis should have been the focus of the scouting report, you know, probably was, but he still ran for 280 yards. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Shamar James said a lot of uh, guys uh, I, I were not gap sound, not in their right assignments. That led to it. And then offensively, you know, you're down 23 nothing. You're you're trying to climb out of a hole. Um, but still some conservative play calling by Billy Napier. 
you know, Kentucky stacked the box. Um, they took a few shots downfield, but I feel like probably not enough given how Kentucky was playing them. And that certainly was a, uh, an issue of contention with uh, with fans this week. I, I think fans are very down right now on, on Billy Napier's play calling and his conservative approach. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. In fact, we'll talk about a couple of the things you said. Let's start with that defense. You know, as I was watching, you know, Kentucky run all over Florida, Florida had only allowed 340 rushing yards through the first four games. They gave up 329 to Kentucky. And I'll tell you, this game really reminded me of two years ago when LSU's Tyrion Davis-Price ran for 287 yards against the Gators, where they just kept handing it to him because the Gators just couldn't tackle him. You know, so they go from averaging 85 rushing yards and 24 points a game to 329 yards against Kentucky. So, you know, this week in practice, what are the main things that they're going to be stressing to make sure that something like that, again, doesn't happen, especially when Georgia, you know, heads to Jacksonville? here in a few weeks yeah I think physicality tackling right you're going to be seeing a lot of those kind of drills probably this week you know getting back to you know having that physical mindset on defense that's going to be really uh really important and then also the uh you know um just you know but also within that framework uh you know being true to your assignments you know being where you're supposed to be uh doing your job so to speak um, there might have been, or you know, Shamar James intimated probably a lot of freelancing uh, in that game on defense, where guys were were trying to maybe do too much and make plays and be in places that they shouldn't have been. And uh, I think that probably needs to get cleaned up too. Yeah, and penalties. There were there were some bad penalties in there too, uh, unfortunately for the Gators. So. You know, let's talk about the offense, too, because, I mean, look, Grand Mertz, when you look at the box score, when you just look at pure numbers, 25 of 30, good completion percentage, 244 yards, that's okay, two touchdowns, one interception, but, you know, just when you watch him lead the offense, it's not something that leaps off the page to you. So, you know, will he continue to lead the team the rest of the season, or might we see a little bit of Jack Miller to see if he can inject a little bit more life into the offense? Well, you know, I, I think Graham is the guy, but I do think the issue is, you know, it's amazing. You know, you're you're talking about a guy, Graham Mertz, with, with a 79% completion percentage, but only six touchdowns. Um, so there's obviously a lot of issues in the red zone. We saw that in the Charlotte game. Um, and, and, you know, I think the book is starting to come out on Graham where, you know, take away the short and intermediate stuff and, you know, he's going to have to beat you deep, you know, and, and he – he did have that really nice throw to Caleb Douglas right before the end of the first half. And unfortunately, Caleb Douglas hurt himself pretty bad on the play. He's going to be out four to six weeks. Uh, but um, there were a few other deep shots. There was one to Pearsall that, um, you know, he kind of let him a little bit. Pearsall made a dive. He didn't get it. He missed Caleb Douglas earlier in the first half. So Graham is going to have to connect on some of those deep throws uh, going forward. Um, you know, and, and something I wrote today about the play calling is, uh, you know, if, if Billy Napier is not going to give up the play calling and it's clearly he's not, you know, for this season, um, you know, he's got to open things up a little bit, you know, and he's got to, you know, I, I think, you know, try to go for more big plays downfield because uh, the short stuff, it just puts such a strain on your offense. So it's such a little margin for error. I mean, you're one for three on fourth downs in that game. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, you're putting yourself in these fourth and short situations uh, by dinking and dunking throughout the whole game. 
Yeah, you know, when you talk about Napier's play calling, you know, up in Jacksonville every week, the columnist Gene Frenette, after a Jaguars game, he'll give out grades for offense, defense, special teams, and coaching. If you were to give Billy Napier a coaching grade right now, uh, where would that be for his play calling? For the whole season or just for coming off this game? I I would say the whole season. Uh, probably like uh, probably C minus. I mean, you can't discount Tennessee. He came up with some good play calls in that game. Um, but at the same point, yeah, definitely a very conservative approach. Um, the Charlotte game and, and this game, you know, him taking his foot off the pedal in that Tennessee game, I think is bled over. If you take a look at the last 10 quarters of football that they've played since then, um, they've only scored three touchdowns. Um, in, in those 10 quarters. And, um, you know, I, I think a team feeds off the mindset of its coach sometimes in those situations. And I, I, that's why I think it's really important, you know, for him going forward to, uh, you know, uh, put the foot on the metal, you know, get, give his, give his players, empower his players to try to, uh, you know, make more big plays and try to uh, take more strikes. Cause right now he's not doing that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that, uh, Kentucky tried taking away some of that intermediate stuff to make Graham Mertz beat him. Well, the one thing that they did incredibly well was take away the best offensive weapon, and that was Trevor Etienne. He had been the bright spot all season, but only had 29 yards rushing in this game on 11 attempts. So again, does that go back to some of the play calling, or is Kentucky really that good? What happened there? Yeah, well, again, I think it goes back to stacking the box, right? And knowing that, uh, you know, making, creating a game plan. And we even saw that in the Utah game, too, going back to week one, creating a game plan where um, we're going to make Florida beat you deep. We're going to make up, you know, we're going to stack the box. We're going to take away the run first. We're going to make them one dimensional. And then we're going to try to take away the short stuff and, uh, you know, give you some opportunities for some one on one matchups downfield. And until. Florida consistently connects on those. I think that's going to be the game plan going forward, and they're going to take the run game away. Now, sometimes uh, you could have a day, too. And, and you know, let's not forget the offensive line, too, plays into this as well. And Kingsley Agakin has been banged up all, all year. He, you know, clearly wasn't 100% against Kentucky. He did play through it, but, you know, he's limping throughout the second half. You know, sometimes you can have a night like against Tennessee where even if the box is stacked, your your offensive line comes out, you know, your running backs come out, you, you know, they, they make people miss. You can have one of those days, um, but that's not easy to do. And and I think for the run game, you know, it starts up front. You know, I, I do think they miss Osiris Torres. I think he was a special offensive lineman. Obviously, he's starting for the Buffalo Bills now. I think the threat of Anthony Richardson, too, is a dual threat quarterback. Uh, opened up a lot of running lanes for Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne that are not there with Graham Mertz. So I think those are all factoring into some of the issues uh, with the run game. And ideally, you'd want balance. But until you soften up the defense and make the defense think that you can beat them deep, it's it's going to be really hard to run the football uh, when the boxes are stacked against you. Yeah, I mean, they just need to throw him up to Pearsall. That catch he made against Charlotte was one of the best I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen somebody pluck a ball out of the air, kind of upward, like with with an upside-down claw. It was just incredible. So I'd love to see more deep shots. But, you know, this might be an impossible question for you to answer, but I have to ask it. You know, if Florida continues to struggle and this year just doesn't look very good— can you see a situation where someone like ETN, who could be an elite runner in other places, 
you know, hits the transfer portal so he can go try and win a title somewhere. I mean, listen, his brother certainly has been uh, beating the drum a little bit on that in terms of him wanting to get him more touches. Um, I, you know, I think that's part of the concern, too, in, in year two is the fact that, you know, you could say that Billy Napier is building something. He's recruiting really well, and, and he is. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's not finished until it's on the dotted line. I mean, I'd be really concerned about DJ Lagway at this point. And now Lagway, I think, is really committed to Florida. I think he really um, wants to be here regardless. And he's been he's been committed for over a year and a half. But you have to show him that this offense can be dynamic under him. And, and, and he's more of a dual threat, which might be what, you know, Billy Napier wants. Um, also, and, and can sell him on, you know, how Anthony Richardson looked in year one as a dual threat quarterback. Uh, but still, you know, you want to keep that class together. You want to have a good season so that you can give, uh, you know, a lot of these recruits kind of hope that year three um, is is trending in a positive direction. Yeah, and that's the hard thing. I mean, college football, it's such a short season. It's, you know, 12 games. It's not even four months. Fans get impatient quickly. Billy Napier, he did a great job recruiting, and you're right. Year three should be great. Lagway, one of the top quarterback recruits in the nation. But, you know, people, they, already Gator fans are calling for his head. And I, I saw that story that we had on the Gainesville Sun site this weekend about what it would take to pay, you know, pay Napier off, which is what, 50-something million dollars. So I can't imagine them wanting to do that. But like I said, yeah. pe- you know, people just, they, they start to clamor for it. And so, you know, I, I guess we'll we'll just hopefully they can keep all of those recruits wanting to come here, like you say. But, you know, now that the Gators, they have Vanderbilt and South Carolina coming up before a bye and Georgia. So how do you see this next month going for the Gators? Yeah, I think these two are must wins. I mean, you got to come out with the right mindset. I mean, Vandy beat the Gators last year, obviously, in, uh, in, in, in Nashville. You would think that there would be a little bit of a, a revenge factor there. Uh, it'll be a different quarterback. They won't have to see Ray Davis again, you know, because they saw him last week. Um, but uh, I think A.J. Swan now, the new quarterback, has 11 touchdown passes. He also has seven picks. You know, another big issue with the defense is turnovers, just one forced in five games. Uh, and and let's not forget Jason Marshall uh, in that Kentucky game had a chance uh, for a pick six that really could have you know, turned some momentum in the first half and didn't come through with it. So that's another area, too, with the defense, that they've got to be a little more opportunistic. Um, and we also saw, that you know, the patented special teams gaffe, right? The big penalty on the Dijon Johnson leaping over. That was a huge momentum play because it was 10 nothing, and you had him stopped inside the 10-yard line. So really all phases are kind of contributing to it, although it does seem like there's a, a special team's mistake every week with this team. Um, but... Uh, Irregardless, I, I think, you know, there, there's got to be a heightened sense of urgency here for Vanderbilt and South Carolina so you can take some momentum into that going into the bye week before the Georgia game. You really got to find a way to get these two. And, and you know, as I wrote in my column, I think Vanderbilt's 12th in the SEC in pass defense. South Carolina's 14th. Really a perfect time to open up, try to open up the offense and get the passing game going here in the next couple of weeks um, and create some big plays and some momentum heading into the Georgia game. Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, we've talked about some things on offense, defense, and special teams that needs improvement. If you were to pick just one thing that they truly need to get better at before the Georgia game, which one would it be? Yeah, I just think the uh, I just think the offense needs to uh, find a way to really uh, click and and find a way to you know 
score in the red zone and and create more explosive plays. That would probably be, you know, just, just more points. I mean, last in the SEC in scoring offense, you know, you need to find a way to get, uh, you know, it, it sounds simple, but finding ways uh, to get more points on the board to cash in on those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what what else might you want to, Kevin, get in front of the audience as we're nearing the halfway point here for the college football season with still a long way to go for these Gators? Well, I think, the you know, the main thing is, can we see, uh, you know, I'm curious to see if the defense can bounce back to the next two weeks. Um, Austin Armstrong, I, I was very high on him. I think that, you know, that could be another key to a successful season if the defense can be that shutdown defense that we saw the first four weeks. And if week five was just an aberration, but if the defense goes South, I think that's really going to put a ton of pressure on this offense and has trouble scoring points. So can, can the defense bounce back too? I think it's going to be a really kind of a big, uh, big storyline here in the next couple of weeks in the season. Alrighty. Well, you will be writing about all of those storylines and we can check out all of your work at Gainesville.com. And Kevin, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, uh, at Kevin Brockway G1 on X and, uh, you know, formerly known as Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, Gatorsports.com, Gainesville.com uh, is where you can find my stories. Fantastic. Kevin, as always, I appreciate you coming here, sharing your knowledge with us, and I look forward to talking to you before that Georgia game. All right. Thank you, Timothy. Now it's on to UCF. Let's bring in Chris Boyle of the Daytona Beach News Journal. Chris, thanks for joining me. Hey, happy to be back. How you doing, Tim? I am not too bad at all. You know, I'm curious, before we, we get on to UCF here, did you ever watch the, uh, the reruns of Gomer Pyle when you were a kid? No, that skipped me by a couple of generations. I'm, I'm younger than you'd probably like to know. All righty. Well, you know, when, when I used to watch the reruns as a kid, uh, Sergeant Carter had a corporal. His name was Corporal Boyle. So whenever I hear your name, I always have a word association with the Gomer Pyle show. So there's some useless information to get you started today. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I'd never never heard of it. I'll have to go check out some uh, some old YouTube clips or something like that after we're done here. Yeah, there you go. People right now are Googling Corporal Boyle, Gomer Pyle. Anyhow, Let's get on to more interesting things, and that is UCF. And I got to tell you, Chris, I was I was checking out that game the other night, and I was like, oh, okay, it's getting late, and looks like UCF's going to win this game, so I'm going to go on to other things. And then I see they lost 36-35 in their first Big 12 home opener. What went on for the Bears to outscore the Knights 26-0 in that fourth quarter? Well, they gave up 29 unanswered in total, and I remember when they when Baylor lined up to kick the field goal down 35 to seven. I thought I don't know if it was just you know a saving face type thing, or you know the, I don't think even at that point they could have dreamed that they were going to score the rest of the night without interruption and to overcome you know the four touchdown deficit. But I remember starting to write my recap and it was you know fairly upbeat and uplifting considering that you know UCF was going to win this this first game in conference play and that's always the kiss of death right and that's always the uh you know trying to get ahead and write the story before the game actually hits triple zeros tends to tends to you know re result in control a delete um so what happened is anything and everything possible to lose a football game. They turned it over. Uh, that that kind of kick-started the, the momentum. They turned it over deep in Baylor territory. Uh, they couldn't get off the field on third down. They couldn't lengthen drives and 
bleed the clock um, just to give themselves, uh, you know, an easier way of finishing the game. They allowed a fumble return for a touchdown. Uh, They, you know, just couldn't get stops, couldn't score. (laughs) Didn't play particularly well on special teams. They uh, had a punt that was, you know, fairly wobbly and out of bounds and gave Baylor a short field um, in the middle of that rally. So, and then they missed the field goal at the very end. Uh, obviously, a very tough kick from 59 yards out. But you know, it was it was astonishing to watch in real time. I, I think at, at one point I just kind of assumed that the game was was pretty safe in hand. They were up by you know 25 points with 19 to go, 19 minutes to go, and uh, yeah, no lead safe. And I think that was kind of a, a lesson learned the hard way for them. You know, what does that do for a team like this? They're they're now three and two. You know, they've lost both of their Big 12 games. They've certainly taken their lumps kind of in both of those games in different ways. So, you know, we're, we're almost midway through the season. What does something like this either teach them or what do they work on or what can they do to shake this off? Because it doesn't get easier from here. No, and it can kind of go a number of different ways here. I mean, obviously, they have been talking about keeping their heads up that they can that they've shown that they can compete with teams in this league that they were you know even with Kansas State into the second half they led that game in the third quarter um and Kansas State won the league last year that they were up by you know 35-7 margin against Baylor a team that won the league 2 years ago uh and obviously let that one get away uh, the other the other thing is, yeah, it can definitely linger. I don't think there's any way that it can't. Um, you know, it, you don't want to lose full momentum and go into a tailspin, but there's definitely concern that that could happen. You go back on the road to Kansas this week, a team that was 4-0 going into last week and lost to a very good Texas team. Uh, you've got a bye after that. You've got Oklahoma on another road trip right after that. So you could very, you know, very easily see this team as 3-4 and four going home uh, to face West Virginia on homecoming. And at that point, when you, when you start to kind of have those things pile up, that's when the real concern comes as to whether things start to kind of fall apart at the seams or whether or not they can just stem the tide somewhere, whether it's now or whether it's uh, shortly thereafter. But they obviously don't want to let this thing get away from them. Yeah, as you say, Kansas, then a bye, then Oklahoma, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Oklahoma State. I mean, you, you got to find a way to win a few of those because you have three wins. You still got to get three more to get into a bowl game. Do you see that happening? I still do. I think that there are, I mean, there are three games I think that they can win out of this, uh, out of the remaining, what, seven? Uh, you know, I don't think, I know this is obviously the, the, the time and, place where it seems like it's all doom and gloom right now. Like, how could you let that happen? Obviously they don't, you know, this is just going to be a, a rough year for them, but you know, I think that they, you know, depending on Jalen Daniels health status is big for, for Kansas this week. They've not played well without him um, the last couple, you know, the last two seasons and they went, they started out five and oh last year and then lost seven of their last eight. So that's not a game they can't go out there and win on Saturday, for instance, I think Oklahoma is very tough. I don't think they I don't think they're going to win that game personally. Um, but, you know, you still got three home games left in the schedule. You've got West Virginia. You've got uh, Oklahoma State and they're six and oh in space games. And that's their opponent for that one. And then they've got Houston at the very end of the season. Cincinnati's not looked good at all. Um, they've not looked convincing. So I know that's been a place where they've really struggled to, to win on the road. 
But again, I don't think that's a, a game they have no chance to win either. So they've definitely got a, a lot of games on the schedule that they you know, should be in. It's whether they can finish them. Right now, the fourth quarter is the, the biggest con- concern for me. They've been outscored 39 to 7 in the fourth quarter in Big, in big 12 play. So they've, if they've got to get better there, they've got to, you know, close out situations uh, to, to win football games from here on out to have any chance at a bowl. Yeah, Gus Malzahn's definitely, I'm sure, working on tightening up that fourth quarter issue. And if there is one game, I'm sure that more than any they'd like to pull off the upset is Oklahoma, if for nothing more, seeing their former quarterback Dylan Gabriel back there for the Sooners. But, you know, uh, because we are kind of doing a a mid-season-ish check-in here, you know, I just want to look at the offense and defense. Let's start with the offense first. You know, obviously you lose John Rice Plumley early in the season. Timmy McLean, he's played okay. You know, against Baylor, he was 13 to 25, not a great percentage, but 234 yards and two touchdowns with an interception. So how has he been doing in running this offense? Because it seems like they've been scoring pretty well since he's taken over. It's been up and down and uh, it's a lot of it's become, you know, it's not just McLean, but their red zone offense in general has not been particularly great this year. They've uh, not scored enough. They're 11 for 20 uh, touchdowns in the red zone this year. Um, And that includes eight field goal attempts as well. So they've come away empty a a few times. And again, the margins for error are just very small uh, in the Big 12 in general. And so when you don't have the athletic advantage that, you know, they've been accustomed to having, you can't be leaving points on the board. So, that's just not going to get it done if they're if they're going to be uh, competitive for the rest of the way. And McLean, I'd say, you know, there's been definite highlights. I mean, you look at his touchdown pass uh, against Kansas State to Kobe Hudson, not the flea flicker, the second, the one right out of halftime. That was a really pretty deep ball down the right sideline. Uh, his ability, his ability to escape the pressure on that last drive against Baylor. The touchdown pass he had to Javon Baker in, in the first quarter of that game. So there's definitely been some highlights. There's also been some head scratchers. Like he's just, you know, you're seeing a guy that's that hasn't played a lot of competitive football in the last two years being thrown into a very difficult situation and having to, you know, occasionally try to do it uh, uncomfortably. They they want to limit him what they what they would describe as freelancing. Um, they want to keep him, con, you know, within the confines of the offense to get the ball out quicker rather than kind of scrambling around and trying to make something happen. Because some of the times he's done that, that's when the ball's gotten put in harmful situations. Do you think the stage is too big for him right now? Or is he just kind of in that learning phase? And, you know, what is Malzahn maybe doing to take some of that pressure off? Uh, I don't know if the stage is too big. I mean, obviously, when your first assignment is Kansas State on the road (laughs) is... uh, you know, I know Villanova was technically his first start for UCF, but Kansas State on the road is a, is a very tough draw for a first assignment. I don't think he played particularly badly in that game. I actually think he did a lot of good things for them. It was just two real big uh, mental errors that, that cost him, I think, in the long run there. Um, you know, I think the number one solution to alleviating the pressure on him is running the football. Uh, if, they, if they can get that run game really kind of cranked up, and they did at times – over the weekend between Johnny Richardson and, and RJ Harvey, if they can really keep that part of the game uh, consistent, then that'll obviously help them a lot. And then, you know, you got to take into consideration too, that they had a change in offensive coordinators in the, in the winter time. Uh, so Darren Henshaw took over right around January. So it's a new offense that was insa- installed. 
And again, he didn't play at all last year. He was on the scout team, um, started nine, played nine starts at USF his freshman, his true freshman year. So you, you take into that uh, lack of game sharpness. It is going to take a, a few games, I think, for him to really get settled in and dialed in and to to feel it, feel it more at ease. But whether or not he'll have a lot more opportunities to do so remains to be unseen because John Rice Plumley does sound like he's pretty close to returning, whether it's this Saturday or at Oklahoma. Oh, sure. I'm sure they're going to want to get him back for Oklahoma, regardless of how well McLean's playing, because you want your more experienced, you know, big game quarterback in there. All right, let's look at the other side of the ball, and that's defense. Now, you know, they, they looked well early. They struggled a little bit against Kansas State, but last week when you look at Baylor, it's not that they struggled. They were put in some bad positions in that fourth quarter. So just talk about this defense as a whole and what you've seen out of them. Well, I think they've really struggled to stop the run. I think that's the biggest thing for me is that, you know, when when playing in teams that have quality run uh, rush offenses, Kansas State and Boise State immediately come to mind. They've really, really struggled uh, to make to make tackles at the second level in particular with the linebackers and, and, and the safeties. Uh, it seems that there have been just been way too many missed tackles uh, trying to get these guys to the ground. Um, on the whole, you know, the the the. The pressure has been there. They've gotten an, uh, uh, an increased number of sacks. They had four this past weekend. They have nine overall. Um, I think the the cornerback play has been particularly good on the outside. I think Corey Thornton and Brandon Adams have been, you know, pretty pretty solid out there. They haven't really had a lot of tests uh, to this point. So I think they've been, uh, you know, among the better players on the team. That that middle of the field though is is definitely the weakness. Guarding the tight ends. Making the tackles, um, you know, in the run game and at the, uh, you know, in the short, quick pass game. I think that's where the area they've really got to figure out who our best players are and to to tighten that up, filling the gaps and and making plays and you know preventing these longer drives and these grinding drives. You think about that game against Baylor and they only, you know, they had uh, they were on the field, I think, for almost 23 minutes in the first half in that game. And I think that did wear them down at the, as the game wore on, whether it was emotionally or you know physically or mentally. Being on the field for that many snaps eventually catches up with your legs. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. All right, real quick, let's talk about this weekend's game. You've got Kansas. I was actually surprised that the early spread only has this, uh, you know, Kansas is a three-point favorite. So how do you see this game going this week uh, out there at Kansas? Well, I think the spread reflects the uncertainty at quarterback for Kansas, whether or not it's going to be uh, Jalen Daniels or, or or Jason Bean playing QB. Uh, like I mentioned, Kansas has been a much better team with Daniels out there. Uh, it's not the uh, easiest place to play, but it's also you know a, a, not the most difficult place to play in the league too. So um, <clears throat> I think the spread is – probably relatively fair. I think Kansas and UCF athletically are probably on the same page. One thing that I think Kansas definitely has an advantage of is if Daniels plays, they've got as much experience uh, from last year as any team in the league. They have 91% of their offensive production uh, return and 85% of their overall production uh, return on both sides of the ball. So this is a team that Went through it. Um, it was able to really kind of have immediate success under Lance Leopold last year. They got off to a 5-0 and start. They made a bowl game. They played well in the bowl game, even though they lost. They won four out of the uh, out of the gate this year, including a really impressive home win over Illinois. 
Um, I think it's going to be a tough assignment. I picked Kansas to win this game in the preseason, but if, if Daniels is unavailable, I think this is a game that UCF, you know, is going to be very much in. And even if he does play, if they can get a few stops here and if they can protect the football, I mean, they've shown that they can score in this league. I think that's the most important thing. They've shown that they can move the football and, you know, get in the end zone enough to give themselves a chance. It's, you know, me fixing the other details and, and protecting the football that'll determine whether or not they can win these games. All righty. And I will throw a stat at you that I bet you didn't know. This, this, You can add this to your stories this week, Chris. UCF and Kansas in 2015 were both 0-12. I remember UCF being 0-12 tw- uh, in 2015. I got married in 2015, so... Uh, you know, having a fall wedding wasn't necessarily the worst thing that year to not have to watch uh, <laughs> the team go through such struggles. But yeah, um, it, I, I didn't remember the Kansas went winless in that as well. But that kind of tells you, you know, how fragile things can be at times. And obviously, you don't want to have that sort of a losing streak uh, any any longer for UCF, given where they've uh, where they've come from. Nope. Well, there you go. So they were 0-24 between the two of them that year. Yikes. All right, Chris, anything else you want to get in front of the audience before I let you go? Uh, not not much else. I mean, just obviously follow us along at, uh, you know, on Twitter or X at Chris Boyle DBNJ for weekly coverage and updates throughout the week. And then our uh, site's news-journalonline.com. Uh, we'll have our three uh, things to watch ahead of the Saturday game, and we'll obviously have our three takeaways um, post-game as well. All righty, sounds good. Appreciate you being here, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right, well, now let's bring in Jack Williams of the Tallahassee Democrat. Jack, welcome to your first visit to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's it's great to be here. I've been, you know, my Kobe partner, Essen, has been on here a few times. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, chat with you here. Alrighty, very good. Well, let's start out here because, uh, you know, things started out great for FSU. They get a big win over LSU, follow that up with a big win over Southern Miss. And then they eke out a couple of wins against Boston College and Clemson before heading into the bye week. So what uh, what are the Seminoles working on during this bye week as they prepare for this weekend's game with Virginia Tech? Yeah, it's really been a lot of what most people would expect, honestly. Um, we had our, um, it being Monday today, we had the uh, meeting with the uh, press conference with Coach Norvell and then the coordinators today where they discussed kind of what they worked in the bye week and what's going into this week. And the two major things that really stood out were from the offense, mainly the rushing game. That was the big thing, I think, that stood out against Clemson. When you look at the stat line, I believe FSU was held to just 25 yards rushing on the ground. Um, and we're still able to, as you mentioned, eke out a win win uh in that game but that was the big thing that they mentioned too in getting the rushing game going and trey benson spoke last week of he feels like they're nearing a groove they just got to find it and um he really hasn't had you know one of those big time you know trey benson plays that he has had in the past last season so that's a big thing that they've been focused on in the bye week and trying to get that rushing effort going because the receiving game and the passing game has been extremely strong as we've seen with you know keon coleman johnny wilson and whatever um you know uh jordan travis is able to do in the backfield but um, the Russian game is just sputtered here and there. And then the second thing was on um, being able to convert on third down um, Florida state. I think I looked at the NCAA stat today. Florida state is towards you know, the bottom of the uh, national rankings from the NCAA. When it comes to third down conversions, they've really struggled to convert on that side of the game. Um, Norvell mentioned on the other side of the hand, they feel like they're really strong when it 
comes into the red zone. But when it comes into those plays, you know, trying to truck it down the field and get into scoring position, that's where they've been struggling. So the third down, uh, money down, as they call it at FSU, I think that's a common phrase just used everywhere. But um, that's a big thing that they've been working on this week as well. It's been those two major components that uh, FSU has been really honed in on in the bye week. And I'm probably going to emphasize it more going into this week. Oh, certainly. And you're right. I'm surprised Trey Benson hasn't had that big game yet, but I'm sure that that's coming up here as the season progresses. And, you know, they're playing Virginia Tech. They're 23 and a half point favorites. So, you know, you would imagine Florida State will take care of business there. But here's the thing. I've watched college football long enough to know that when you have a team that's barely winning, no matter how good they are, they are ripe for the letdown. So aside from maybe the Miami game, when you look at the remainder of their schedule, do you see a game where you're like, hey, you know, they, they better be on it or this is the team that's going to knock them off? Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned it right there. It's a team that's kind of, you know, you're barely picking up wins. They're kind of eking out those wins there, no matter what, no matter how good they are. And no matter who the opponent is, it's kind of in college football, it's anybody's game, honestly. And um, the big thing I'm weary of when it talk, when you're talking about going forward in FSU's games outside of, you know, Florida and Miami, um, they, you look at how they played on the road and, you know, that kind of comes to con- some concern as well. You know, the Boston college game was very close. I don't think a lot of people expected it to be, you know, a two point game. Uh, I think the line, was a lot wider than that before coming to the game. And then the Clemson game, I was predicted it was going to be tight either way, but, and it's an intimidating road environment. But um, that's still another road game that was very close. I, in my opinion, I could see one of these road games that being uh, Wake Forest and even Pitt. I know it doesn't seem like those two are really teams that a lot of people are really concerned about. Um, just hence the way things have gone for them this weekend. And Virginia Tech is coming off of a big win over Pitt. But um, uh, FSU is just kind of these road games, these true road games, it's kind of been a little tougher for them to finish out. And it's hard to say that too, at the same time as well, because their only home game, their only true home game was against Southern Miss, which is, you know, it's a group of five opponent. And then they had the neutral side game at LSU, which it was very much a, it was very much a home game for a Florida state. But, um, uh, those road games are, in my opinion, that's the kind of thing that's been sneaking up on them that could sneak up on them and get them in my opinion um as well until they prove it to me that they can have a dominant win on the road that's kind of a concern and then you got to put into you know duke and factor as well that's the other big one um, i saw another quarterback maybe out coming up here and they face duke at home coming up in a bit um but you know that duke team is playing well um, they almost beat Notre Dame. They have that win over Clemson too, like Florida State does. So that's another game that could be, um, you know, threatening towards them as well. But um, I mean, like you said, you can't take uh, can't any year you can't take Miami or Florida off the list when it comes to those kind of matchups. Oh, certainly. And you you mentioned Duke's quarterback. Yeah, that's uh, Riley Leonard got the dreaded high ankle sprain. So, you know, that's somewhere even if he plays, that's going to be a heavily taped and limiting injury. So I'll have to see how that one goes. But, you know, now I do want to mention that Miami game. I I didn't want to throw that one in as an upset special because when those two teams get together, it's not really an upset unless one's really bad or the other. And this year, they're both really good. They're both coming off buys right now. They're both 4-0. This game will take place in Tallahassee on November 11th. And Miami, I think the biggest thing that that's revitalized them is they actually have a real offensive line this year. So when you look at that matchup, you know, what what are the things that you see? How, how do these two teams match up? And let's say they are undefeated when that game arrives. You know, what, what do you see is happening? Mm, I mean, like you said, it's a product of their offensive line being so strong this year. Um, It's really interesting because both teams kind of 
match up where each team kind of struggles. You know, Miami is a really strong rushing game. And it looks like their offense really leans more on the rush where FSU has struggled in that area. And it doesn't look like Miami's passing the ball too much where that is what FSU's bread and butter has been all year. So it's, it's a really close matchup. It's a very, it's a matchup that really works um, going to this game. And I think that's what the fans want to look forward to is this is always a really entertaining matchup. It's always a very fun matchup um, outside of what had happened last year um, in the blowout that happened down in Miami. Um, you know, the year before that you had a lot of the dramatics coming down um, to the final minute in the game. It's always an entertaining matchup this year. And I think, you know, this year might be one to remember just talking about how good each team is this year. You know, Miami's rising in the rankings. Florida state has stayed steady uh, in the top five, top 10, um, uh, either way, whoever comes out winning this game further down the road, I think, and if you mentioned too that they are, they could be undefeated at this time. No matter who ends up winning this game, this is going to be a huge booster for either of them. Um, just because again, both these teams are having great years, and the matchup is going to be, you know, really good in general. And from Florida State's perspective, they're really going to need to step up when it comes to stopping the rush. Uh, Clemson rushed for I can't I can't remember the stat line right now, but they you know they've always been known to rush heavy against Florida State, and they did despite losing. They did that against Florida State. Virginia Tech coming in this weekend. Um, they're coming off the win over Pitt, which they rushed for. Um, I think they rushed for just over 100 yards or just over 200, I believe, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. But there was a team that leaned to the rush very heavy as well. Um, if Florida, Florida State, by the time Miami comes around, if they don't adapt to stopping the, uh, stopping the rush, um, Miami could run away with this game. I and mean, the vice versa could go for Miami. Um, you know, Florida State could go off with their receiving core. Um, lately, it's been either the opponent will stop Keon Coleman or they will stop Johnny Wilson. Um, last week, uh, Jordan Travis kind of had a quote after that. They felt he felt like they were disrespected because they didn't put two men uh, into double coverage on Johnny or Keon. So both of them were kind of able to go off during the game. But um, if the receiving game goes off for Florida State, then Miami could be in trouble. So either way, um, kind of a long winded uh, answer to that question. But um, it's pairing up to be a good matchup and it's really going to push both teams to just be forced to play play a complete game in order to win. No, I think that's a complete answer, and I love the enthusiasm because you can hear this is going to be a great game. And as you mentioned, Virginia Tech, they had 200 yards even rushing last week. So, you know, their their ground game looks like it's pretty good. So, uh, you know, that one should be fun. Now, let's talk about Jordan Travis because you mentioned Trey Benson, their star running back, who's looking to break out. Well, you know, Jordan Travis is still having a pretty good year. He got hurt a couple of weeks ago. He's continued to play through it, still on pace for about 3,000 yards. He's got 10 touchdowns to one interception which is just, you know, absolutely stellar. So uh, what have you liked so far about his play, and what would you like to see him do better if this team hopes to make that college football playoff? I mean, he. I, what I really like about what he's doing so far is he's really going – he's really putting the team first. He's putting that team effort specifically first. And I think the best way it was summed up was in one of the quotes that he gave um, before the Clemson game during Clemson week, he said, "Um, I could go for zero yards passing, zero rushing yards, zero touchdowns, but as long as we win, it doesn't matter to me. He's very much focused on doing everything that he can do in order to help the team win. And he has been doing it. He's been, you know, he's been playing up to, the standards he should be playing. He's been playing very, you know, competitive and he's been doing everything he needs to do, getting the ball to his receivers, rushing when he needs to, getting the first downs. He's been doing everything very um, you know, conscious and very within what he's able to do. What I would like to see from him more is that 
in my personal opinion. Um, you talk about him being in the Heisman race. Personally, as of now, I know FSU fans might not want to hear this, but I don't really think he's doing enough to win the Heisman or even really be a top five contender right now. I really would like to see him do more of the, have more of those explosive plays, those plays where he looks like Houdini out there, where he is, he's still very mobile. Don't get me wrong, but those plays where, you know, he's missing, he's making guys miss tackles left and right. And he is getting huge yards on those plays. Um, You know, really having some terrific passes there. He has to have a little bit more dynamic flair in my opinion to what he's doing this season again he's doing just he's doing enough to help them win and he's doing he's definitely <clears throat> fulfilling the team aspect of all this and the team aspect of winning but i think he like for lack of a better word i think he might want to be a little bit more selfish and think about his game a little bit more and really emphasize that dynamic jordan travis persona that we saw so much last year and got him to this point um and you know bringing back the miami game again you know that could be a game for him you know there could be one of these games coming up to whether it be virginia tech syracuse or duke um he could go off and his stat line could absolutely blow up and that could be his game as well to bring up to the Miami game, even down the road, that Florida game could be that game for him as well. But um, I think he just needs a little bit more of a dynamic Jordan Travis showing um, because I, in my personal opinion, we saw a little bit of it against LSU, but we haven't seen, you know, that performance just yet. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of football left, but when you stack him up against, let's say the uh, Heisman defender, Caleb Williams, he's got 21 touchdowns to one interception where Travis has 10 to one. So he's going to have to get 11 more TDs and no interceptions just to uh, try and catch up. But, you know, hey, he's been a good leader for the team. He's improved year over year over year. So we'll watch out for that. So uh, let's look at the defense now. We'll flip to the other side of the ball and kind of assess how they've been. You know, that they they had a lot of great guys come back, like Jared Verse and Tatum Bethune and the whole crowd there. So why don't you assess the defense's play and uh, w- what you've liked and haven't liked about what they've been doing. They average, uh, I believe it's 22.5 points a game they're giving up right now. Yeah, yeah. I think they're starting to stabilize out a little bit more since the Boston College game. You know, the Boston College game was, you know, kind of a weaker performance for them. Um, and then we saw in the Clemson game, it was kind of a weird flip-flop of things that we saw the defense was kind of, you know, lacking throughout the first half of that game towards the second half and into overtime. They've really stepped it up and the offense kind of did a flip-flop uh, when we're talking about that perspective as well. Um uh, the defensive side of the ball, I think, you know, it's starting to improve a little bit and they're starting to find stability. Um, Really what we're seeing up front on the line has been just so good right now. Obviously, Jared Verse and what he brings to the field is just, you know, has been really competitive lately. The line has just been stable in general. And then the linebacking core, which has received a lot of adversity throughout the um throughout the offseason due to all the transfers that left and the um kids they had graduate. And then they kind of had a, you know, a more bare look. And that, I say that kind of. You know, you still have Kalen Deloach there and, you know, some other bigger guys as well, and Tate Bethune. But, um, you know, they still have to lean on some younger guys and at linebacker. So the big question that has that hasn't come in yet, and um, hopefully it does in just the fact of um health. Um, if one of them goes down, one of the younger guys will need to step up. And it's just about being prepared for that, that situation, how that's going to impact the defense as a whole. But so far, the linebacking core and, you know, um, the 
defense it looked really solid in that Clemson game towards the end. We saw that big play by um, Kalen Deloach where he uh, got that sack on uh, Clemson's quarterback, picked it up and ran it in for a touchdown. Um, they had a really good um, second half towards overtime at the end of the week, uh, um, two weekends ago. Um, that really allowed them to, uh, you know, really propel them to win in overtime. The defense really stepped up when it did. Um, the big thing that we need that I would like to see more of as well, the big thing that's kind of been standing out lately is um, the defensive backs are doing enough to win as well. You know, they're getting the uh, pass breakups that they are, that they're getting and stuff like that. They're looking good. But um, we've been hearing so much about the secondary. We've seen how good it can be uh, during fall camp, during practices. They're very impressive, very athletic, very quick. Um, we just need to see a little bit more of that during games. Um, we haven't seen them be as shut down as they usually are. Um, and But we see it during practice and stuff like that, and you hear all about it. Um, that's another core of the field. And it's weird hearing that like Florida State and their defensive backs need to step up because they've had such a strong history in the secondary. But um, uh, I think the secondary just needs a little boost uh, overall when we're going to these the rest of the games through October and into November. Alrighty, sounds good. Well, I think we've had a good breakdown of the offense, the defense. We're looking at what's coming up with Virginia Tech, Miami there later in the season. Jack, is there anything else you want to get in front of the audience before I let you out of here? No, not nothing in particular. Um just this team's just very talented. Um wide receivers of Johnny Johnny uh, Wilson, Keon Coleman, they're gonna be some they're just really, really fun guys to watch and um uh yeah, there's this is a very talented team, very exciting team as well. Um, and I think they believe too that they there is much more room to improve and get better on too. So um, just look out for that because this team still has a lot left in the tank. Alrighty, sounds good. And as always, you can find Jack's work and his tag team partner Essen Kassam at Tallahassee.com. And Jack, where can people find you on social media if they want to find you on X? Yeah, absolutely. X. Oh my god, that caught me off guard. <laughs> um, yeah, I was lucky enough. I have a really normal name, Jack Williams. I was lucky enough to get a really easy handle. My handle on uh, X is Jack G. Williams, and you can find me there for all different FSU content. Alrighty, sounds good. Well, Jack, I appreciate you joining me for the first time, and I'm sure it will not be the last time. So I look forward to talking to you again soon, and thanks for being here. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Well, let's round out this week's show with Joe Zagaki, the voice of the Miami Hurricanes. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All righty. Well, you know, the Hurricanes, they're coming out of their bye week 4-0. They've got one good win over Texas A&M. Haven't really been challenged in any of their other games, and they probably won't be challenged this weekend with 20-and-a-half-point underdog Georgia Tech coming in. But then they have North Carolina and Clemson coming up. So what have you liked about this team so far through the first four games of the season, and what are they going to be working on as they get ready for that tough part of the schedule? I think that, uh, the best thing about the first four games is that they played pretty clean football. They've been, been able to accomplish their goals, which is uh, be physical, uh, run the football. They're averaging 250 yards a game basically on the ground. they become a very good uh, team in terms of stopping the run, pulling their opponents to 40 yards a game on the ground. And then they were able to respond to adversity and overcome mistakes in the Texas A&M game. And as you said, they really haven't been challenged. So I don't think that we know if Miami has an identity yet. We are going into what the sixth week of the college football season. Miami has played four games. Three of those games you would kind of call warm-up games where they barely broke a sweat. Uh, so it's a small, uh, small sample size, really. The biggest game 
most challenging game was Texas A&M. And if that performance holds up all year, what you would pull from that game is there was a physicality to it. There was a uh, sense of unity to it. And it was a team that just kept fighting in that game. So that's what they're going to need to have a successful season the rest of the way. Conference play starts this week against Georgia Tech. As you mentioned, Miami is a big uh, favorite in the game. I would also throw in there that Georgia Tech is one of those teams, I think every program has it, that's been a real thorn in my Miami entered the ACC. Um, Miami leads the series by one game, 14 wins against 13 losses. Uh, Miami beat Georgia Tech last year. But Georgia Tech always seems to give Miami trouble. I think the Yellow Jackets, despite coming off a horrific loss last week to Bowling Green, have enough offensive weapons that they could, nothing beat Miami, but they could uh, throw a monkey wrench at the Hurricanes a little bit. They've got a very talented offensive squad. And uh, so I think the start of the game will be interesting. I think the start of the game will be important for both teams. Absolutely. Makes you wonder if the Vegas money is going to lean toward Georgia Tech with a 20 and a half point spread, knowing the history. But, you know, from what I've seen, what I've watched with this Hurricanes group this year, the biggest improvement from last year has got to be that offensive line. So is my assessment correct? Or what do you think is that biggest area of improvement as their 4-0? Yeah, I think your assessment is right on. Miami has not had this kind of offensive line probably in 20 years. With the size, the strength, the physicality, the experience, what's unique about it is they really never played together until this season. Matt Lee's a transfer. The center is a transfer from uh, Central Florida. Davion Cohen, the left guard, is a transfer from Alabama. Jalen Rivers was hurt last year. Maui Noah, the right tackle, is a true freshman. The right guard, Inez Cooper, did play last year. But uh, none of those guys played together. Usually, that's not a good recipe. But they've been together since day one of spring football for the most part. Uh, they have gelled. And as I mentioned, maybe it might be a small sample size, but Texas A&M, I thought, was really good on the defensive line. And Miami uh, did a great Miami did a great job against Texas A&M. So I would say, yes, that's the biggest uh, change for Miami. It's one of their best assets and probably something they're going to have to ride the entire year. Yeah, and certainly when you get that type of play out of the offensive line, you're going to get better play out of your quarterback. But when your quarterback is Tyler Van Dyke, a guy that will likely be a first-round NFL pick, I mean, he's just having himself a year again, maybe even better than two years ago, because he struggled a bit last year. But he has more touchdowns through four games this year than he had in nine last year. So aside from that line, what do you see that's better about Van Dyke? Is it his decision-making? Is it his weapons? Is it just simply that offensive line? Well, he's healthy. He was not healthy last year. And um, probably the most often, the most asked question to me this year during the offseason was about Van Dyke. And I thought, you know what? I'm very bullish on Van Dyke. And the reason I'm bullish on Van Dyke is because I thought when he did his freshman year, was exceptional. Um, his last six games, he averaged 300 yards a game. He threw 20 touchdown passes against three interceptions. I didn't think that was a fluke. So I thought if he was healthy this year, combined with a 
good offensive line, that, that would lead him back to what he did his freshman season. And so far, that has been accurate. As, and, and he's been very accurate. Um, he, he throw, he's had all kinds of time to throw. He's playing with confidence. He's throwing the ball with authority. And his throws have been right on the money. And I think the other thing is, uh, two years ago, he wasn't afraid to make a tough throw. He wasn't afraid to have his receivers go make a play because he had confidence in those receivers. Last year, he did not have confidence in the receivers. But this year, with guys like Restrepo and Colby Young and then Jacoby George stepping up, he's not afraid to make it a 50-50 ball and have his receivers go go make a play in midair. And, and so far, they have rewarded his confidence by making big plays. So uh, I think he's had a very good season. He's going to have to be great the rest of the way. I don't know if he's a first-round pick this year. I love his size. I love quarterbacks that look like Van Dyke, 6'4", 225, 230, um, you know, big, strong, powerful. I think he's got all the ingredients to have a great season. The, the next eight weeks will probably decide what kind of draft status he has. Uh, for, for me, I just want him to be a great Miami Hurricane. Absolutely, and he's certainly being that right now, no no doubt about that. Let's look at the defensive side of the ball. You know, they gave up 33 points to A&M, but they've given up 17 points total to three lesser opponents. So give me a quick breakdown of what you like about this defense and what they need to work on as the season progresses. Well, A&M was a bit of an aberration. Remember that 14 of their points came from short range. And, you know, you got to be a great studying team team. But in the A&M game, Miami special teams gave him no chance. Uh, Texas A&M got the ball at the 10-yard line and the 5-yard line. So 14 of their points were on drives that were like 15 yards. Other than that, I think they've been pretty darn good. Better than I thought against the run. Uh, a lot of pressure on the quarterback. Probably not enough stacks. He had 11 stacks. But allowing just 40 yards a game on the ground. Always adding an- another guy to the run force, so I think that's been very important. They do have some injuries. Mesidor has been injured at defensive line. Branson Dean has been injured. Uh, they don't have a lot of don't have great depth on the defensive line, so a little worried about those injuries. Sam Pitchens, the All-American, does come back this week. He'll play against Georgia, Georgia Tech. I think that's going to be very beneficial to the Miami secondary. Uh, I do think as the season unfolds, they are going to make some big plays on defense, but by the nature and the style of their play, they're going to have to overcome some big plays by the offense as well. They're, they are going to take some chances. They are going to put themselves in a risky situation at times because they're looking for risk-reward. As long as the big plays by the opposition don't end up in touchdowns, I think their, their mentality is we'll live with it as long as it's not – the entire game. So, so far they've been good. They have not been burned too badly by the big, big play, uh, but they are going to be challenged uh, this Saturday against Georgia Tech with their quarterback and certainly next week against North Carolina. All righty. Well, now, of course, all fans of Miami have the date circled November 11th on their calendars, and that is when they play Florida State. So, Right now, when you look at the two teams, both 4-0, FSU a top-five team in the country, how do you think Miami stacks up with the Seminoles? 
pretty good. Now that's saying a lot since Florida State beat Miami by what forty points a year ago. So that's a big gap to overcome. But I do think Miami has closed the gap on Florida State because of their recruiting uh, through the portal and through uh, you know freshman players coming in. Florida State probably has will have the advantage in experience. Florida State will have the home field advantage, but Miami has always played pretty, always played good in Tallahassee, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, Florida State played very good, I think, against Clemson. Probably not great against Boston College. Florida State going to be the favorite in that game. Uh, we'll see where Miami is between now and then. Health is going to be, be a big concern. Uh, if they were to play the game now, I'd be a little bit concerned about Miami, again, because of some of the injuries on the defensive line. But I think the Hurricanes are far better equipped to play Florida State this year physically and mentally uh, better than they were a year ago. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That one's still six games away, but it's going to get here quicker than you know. And like I said, you've got North Carolina and Clemson in there as well. So we're going to learn a lot about this Miami team here in the upcoming week. Joe, is there anything else you want to get in front of the audience about the uh, 2023 edition of the Miami Hurricanes? Well, I don't think they're back. Just yet. A lot of people want to say, oh, Miami's back. They're not back yet. October is going to tell a big story. Uh, Georgia Tech, as I mentioned, has always been problematic for Miami. Then Carolina and Clemson in, in October. And then November is a killer month. They've got Louisville, North Carolina State, and Florida State. If Miami gets through those five, was it five games, you know, four and one, Miami has a great chance of playing in the ACC championship game. They're not back yet, but Mario Cristobal and his staff are recruiting at a really, really high level. All those players that were leaving South Florida or Alabama and Georgia and other places, right now they're not leaving. Right now they're committing to Miami, and I think uh, Miami will be back sooner rather than later. They're just not all the way back right now. All righty. Sounds good, Joe. And if people want to hear you as you call the games for the Miami Hurricanes, where should they go? Where can they, they listen online? They can listen to uh, uh, on the free Odyssey app, odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y, odyssey.com will get us anywhere in the world. All righty. Well, it sounds good. You have one of the most well-known and distinctive voices in the business, and you also have a knowledge to match. So, Joe, I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time, and go Kings. And that will do it for another episode of the State of Florida Sports Podcast. I'm Tim Walters, and to quote Jimmy Johnson, who won the 1987 National Championship as head coach of the Miami Hurricanes, the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is that little extra. Well, I hope you can give that little extra this week by joining me again next time and every time. Have a good week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. 
from the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.